Good morning again. Our passage that we will be studying this morning is chapter 2 of the book of James, and we will be uh, looking at verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Um, we've been looking at James for a few weeks now. Uh, James often uh, is seen as sort of this kind of an intense New Testament letter, and it is, but I'm hoping you're, we're beginning to notice just a, a theme that is a beautiful theme that really points us to Christ and to the fact that we have an answer to our trials. Uh, this morning's passage, though, is a shock for some. It's kind of the crux, if you will, of this, of this letter. It's, uh, I'll just read verse 24 to give you a heads up. He says, you see that a person is justified by works, but not by faith alone. And that will grip you if you have come up through a Reformed tradition and Rightly believe that we are saved by what? We are saved by grace. So we'll talk about that. And so we're going to understand this, but we're going to look at it as James presents it. But the step right before this is James has been talking about trials. He's been talking about how this life is filled with them. And when we, when we approach our trials through, through the cross, really, through Christ, uh, we, we grow. And then he talks about partiality. He says, here's a... An example of sin that a lot of people overlook, partiality. And the reason he does that is a lot of the audience would have probably thought they were scoring points on following the law. And, and then all of a sudden they come to this situation that's a real issue and, and the people he's writing to about favoring one type of person over another. Especially in regards to wealth over poverty. And James's main point is when you do that, you have forgotten the gospel. And yet, as he develops that discussion, that argument, he recognizes there will be audience members that are receiving this letter, and possibly even nowadays or even in this room, who would then argue things like, well, um, I, follow, you know, I follow different parts of the law, or I have different emphases, and, and yet he's saying you can't do that. You have to follow all of the law. In fact, the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Such a profound line, such a profound truth, that it might lead someone to just go, fine, I'm saved by grace. You know what? I just can't do it. Thanks be to Jesus that I don't have to do everything. I'll just leave that part of my life untouched. And he's like, you can't do that. That's a dead faith. So that's a little bit where we're going. Uh, and the way he does this is with a little bit of a rhetorical device called an interlocutor. It means he proposes an opponent. He, he assumes a, an argument that he then engages a famous place where many of you may recognize this tactic is in Romans, where Paul has just in chapters 1 through 5, you know, he shared the gospel. And then in 6, he asked the question, shall we sin that grace may abound? What he's done is he's assumed the argument. Maybe someone has said that. Maybe he just assumes they will. And then, of course, Paul answers, by no means. Well, in the same way, James is assuming this idea that, hey, you know, my gift is more faith. I have faith. You have your works. So he's assuming that. So let's read the passage together. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. 
Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the, on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you for a living faith that you have called your children from the kingdom of darkness and you've transferred us through the work of Christ into his kingdom, the kingdom of your beloved son. And Lord, we praise you that what that means is our very DNA has changed. And that means that we are now equipped to be your representatives on earth. And Lord, I pray that that is what your spirit would reveal to us this morning, that this is a gracious, glorious honor to be called into the new story that you've called us into. But Lord, we are also people who struggle with unbelief. We have flesh. And Lord, the, one of the ways our flesh works is it tries to tell us that it can't be that good of news. And so verses like this, though beautiful and though written by your spirit, can often be usurped by the evil one, whether through our flesh or the devil himself. And I pray against that this morning. I pray for anybody who's been harmed by false teaching of works, people who've been taught either twin heresy of, of works righteousness or cheap grace, I pray this morning we would see a divine correction built on love for your glory. Amen. I, I alluded to it in my discussion as we entered into this sermon, but again, a lot of the problem with what, what we're dealing with is the emptiness, if you will, of, of the word faith alone by itself. Just taking that word by itself it's a very awkward word. Uh, an example I thought of, I came up with a, a parable. If I said last weekend I went out and I, went on, I was going to go cross country and my car broke down and I went several days without water and a, a miracle, a person showed up with water. And guess what I was saved by? Swallowing. I swallowed. Thanks be to Jesus. Like you would never say that. You would say they handed me the thing I needed. The swallowing is the obvious method of getting it into my body. Faith is a receptacle of what we're given. So Paul, which often people see as being somewhat opposed to James, and he's not. By the way, Paul wrote after James in the letter of Romans, and I don't believe they're writing against each other in any way, shape, or form, which we'll see as we unpack this passage. But in chapter 3, Paul says, the righteousness of God, this is Romans 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. You've heard those verses. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means our sins on Jesus. He took the wrath for us by his blood 
And then finally, Paul adds, to be received by faith. Now, often we'll just distill that in our normal discussions, but I'm saved by faith. And that's certainly fine to say if you mean what Paul just said. But what James is coming up against is a tendency for people who will then utilize that language as a protector. You know, he's been saying, look into the mirror, the law of liberty. But, you know, the, the one who looks in a mirror and ignores that they have a blemish is absurd to think about. So, too, is coming to Scripture, seeing your sin and not repenting. And his point is people who go out and live fractured lives and areas of our lives are just left unmended. What we're doing by, is we're not actually going to the cross. We're starting to use our theology as a, like an invisibility cloak, like Harry Potter. We're just, you know, we're throwing it on. Going, I don't even want to pretend I, I, I don't even have that sin right now. And so I use words like, hey, I'm saved by faith. It's like the, the playground. You, you can tell a lie if you cross. Did you know do this? Did you know this? You can lie if you do this with your fingers and then put it behind your back. Apparently that's allowed up to a certain point. I wish it continued into adulthood. So what we're going to look at this morning is this. Christ came and redeemed you. That's your story. If you're a Christian, he came, he redeemed your shattered life. And as a Christian, we are now free to engage in works of mending the brokenness of our world. That's what we're engaged. That's what we're called to do. That's our new mission. That's what we're doing. That's what James is doing. And that's what he wants his audience to do. And the two major points we're going to look at are story-based. Stories about faith and stories about works contained in our passage. So starting with stories about faith. Why do I want to start with stories? Um, Flannery O'Connor, I couldn't go find the quote, but I kind of remember it. She wrote this in her Mystery and Manners um, about writing. But she says something like when people ask her what her, she wrote short stories primarily, a world, you know, one of the most famous short story writers of all time, and uh, a believer. And she says something like, when people ask me what my story's about, I tell them, if I could answer that, I wouldn't have had to write the story. And her, and her point is, this, you need to read the words and the sequencing and, and meet the characters as they arise and, and learning their diction and everything to understand what the story's about. And, and in the same way, to understand the scriptures, so often we miss the story. And especially when you come to the dilemma in this passage, so many theologians in the commentaries I look at just want to take it apart word by word, and they forget, often we forget when we read our Bible that it's in the context of story. And so let me remind you of what James is doing in his story. He starts by saying this. His opening is to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, in the Old Testament, that's the period after, uh, after the two, the northern and the southern kingdom were taken captive at separate times. And remember back in those days, they would often take people off into other countries. Think of Daniel. So now you had, you had Israelites scattered all over. In fact, those became communities. So when Paul later goes out and starts a mission, he's coming to, to these synagogues from the dispersion. And in a way, what James is saying is you and I as Christians are now integrated into Israel, we're spiritual Israel, and we're living in a type of dispersion. Our home is not here. Our home is, is here when the kingdom comes. Our home is here when the return of the king is here. But right now we're in a dispersion. And so he tells you, you're in a story. And he begins by saying, and you're going to face trials. That's one of the necessary realities of this world. Everybody's going to face a trial, but the Christian 
is the one uniquely equipped for those trials, and you're on a journey. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, as you face your trials, you'll learn steadfastness and eventually receive a crown of life. What is he saying? You're in a race. The crown in that, in that passage is like the wreath of a race that you get by completing. And so what James is doing in this entire letter is reminding us that we're in a story. <clears throat> and it's amazing how easy it is to miss the number of, of imagery, the amount of imagery and story even in this letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we've been coming to our faith story. That is our first point in what we're going to look at right now is this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, and he tells a story. It's interesting. He could have just told you his point, but he gives us kind of a dialogue, right? A brother or a sister comes to you and then, quote, they say, I, I'm, I'm, well, he actually doesn't say, quote, they come to you in need of clothing and daily food, and you say, quote, go in peace, be warm and well-fed. He's telling a story, and it's, it's somewhat of an absurd story. It's hard to believe anybody would do that. And so what it does is it draws us into this idea of this is crazy. Now let me tell you what's happening in those verses. A brother or a sister is someone that's a member of your congregation. This is not to suggest we don't help people outside of our congregation. or have. But the idea is you know this person. You're in relationship with them. And they have a particular need. Like they need actual food for the day. Or maybe an actual garment because a cold snap is coming through. And, and you have the means. That's the presupposition to this story James is telling. And he says, can you imagine, A, just not doing it? Like, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? That's bad enough. But to actually say these words, peace. What have you just done to that word and that concept? You've emptied it. It's completely, it's actually gone from being beautiful, but it's not even neutral. You've, you've damaged it. It's harmful to say peace to someone who needs clothing and food that you can help them with. Do you hear what he's saying? Faith is like that. Faith is emptied of everything if it's not rooted in its object, which is Christ and all of the benefits of Christ given to somebody. Right, so that's one story he tells. So what is faith? As I said already in the intro, faith is simply the method of reception. But if I keep talking about my faith, my faith, and it doesn't lead to anything, it's absurd. He tells another story. He says, you show me your faith apart from your works. He's imagining a person. And I'm, he's not saying, I'm, it's hard to put this into words. I'll do my best. What he's simply saying is this. You can't know something without seeing something. I mean, even the, thought, the theology of the incarnation, you can't know God who's invisible without a visible representation Jesus. You can't know someone has a quality about them without something. If I go around saying, you know what my greatest quality is, is love. You're going to start to wonder, can I see it? Can you show me it somewhere? So the point is, if I say I have faith, but there's zero evidence, he's saying that's absurd. I'll show you my faith, or faith in general, through the actions. So he's just making this very simple point. But he gives another illustration that when I first started walking with Jesus, my life was actually incredibly influential in that. And it got me reading my Bible, and we looked through her Bible and all the highlights. Remember this, Emily? She's getting a high five. You know this story. And I had a favorite verse, this verse, because it just shows so much personality. You know, James is like, you have faith in one God, <laughs> big deal. 
the demons believe in one God, and they shudder. I love that. The imagination that James is bringing to this text, what is he doing? He's making you go, it's crazy to brag that I believe in one God and do nothing with that. Do you see what he's doing? He's shaking you at your core through story. Right? And so just as an illustration of what I want to say as we move into the better part of the sermon where the works come in through faith, I want to give an illustration that I made up that may not be very good, and I hope I don't hurt anybody's you know, feelings if you're struggling with certain illnesses. But imagine there's a machine in Stillwater that cures cancer, every type of cancer. And I go to it, and I, I've been terminal cancer. I come into this machine, and, it, and I get the scan. And I go back to my doctor, and he does a test. And he says, I've got great news. Completely gone. 100% gone. Two days later, I'm talking to someone, and they're like, yeah, man, can you pray for me? My wife has terminal cancer. And I say, hey, brother, I'll be praying for her. What kind of a person am I? Even a pagan would say, what are you doing? The machine. Remember the machine? And what would be, what would be exempt, what's happening is the absurdity is I, the disconnect is so great that it's, I don't even think it's possible. And that's what James is getting at. It's an impossibility to have experienced this kind of rescue, this kind of redemption, to embody this, to understand it, to embrace it, and behave in this, this manner. Now, as a little bit of an encouragement, please understand, every reader of the letter of James feels the guilt. Like, nobody's reading this going, yeah, that would be ridiculous, right? Like, it's, it's getting us all. That's the, that's the good news. Cheer up. You're in this camp. The question is, are you going to run to Jesus or are you going to just cross your fingers? That's the issue. So second point, stories of works. Um, again, if you'll notice that intense verse, verse 24, the one that everyone remembers, is couched between a few stories, right? And I want to just tell you one of the problems with coming to this atomistically, just looking at the words, is we come to the word works, and a lot of people will go, okay, what are those? What are those? Um, quiet time, um, and they'll come up with a list of good things, important things, tithing, you know, fellowship, just name the things you think you should be doing. Or maybe there's a list of things you think you should stop doing. Good things to stop, good things to start. But these two stories tell us what James is thinking about. Let's look at them. First of all, it's Abraham. You know the story of Abraham? Um, interestingly, in Romans, Paul, after chapter 3, goes right into Abraham as well. And says he's justified by faith. But he tells the story of Abraham actually believing that God would use an offspring between him and Sarah to come to point, eventually he didn't know it was Jesus, but to come and rescue a people. And Abraham believed. And he had to act on faith. His wife's 100 years old. I mean, you can see the faith needed, right? Like, he had to believe that God would still use them to have a child. James picks a little bit of a different part of Abraham's story. He says in verse 21, when, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on an altar? You know the story. Isaac now is born. He's probably in his teens. We don't know exactly. And, and he and Abraham are going up on this mountain for a sacrifice, and Isaac has no idea what's going on. But God's asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son 
Abraham believes, believes God's going to use this son. And so he takes out a knife, and he does, he does everything right. And as he's about to plunge, and just by, you know, Hebrews 11 tells us he thought he was going to actually carry out this killing, this sacrifice, and God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's what he reasoned by faith. But yet what the Lord did was sent an angel to catch mid-swipe his arm and rescued Isaac right before his very eyes and provides a goat for the sacrifice, a substitution for his son. That's the story that James is choosing to talk about how works follows faith. Do you hear that? In other words, Abraham, let me ask you this question. If you could go talk to Abraham a day before this and say, tell me what God looks like to you. How, how close do you feel? And then after this event, tell me how you feel about God and what, you're, what it's like. Do you think there'd be a little difference? You see, when you carry out the actions of faith, God becomes more and more beautiful. In fact, Abraham says, and we are told he was a friend of God. All of a sudden, God went from being amazing and, and Abraham had right theology and followed God and obeyed him to now I'm a friend. Like I love him, I trust him, I want to worship him. He's going to rescue me. Like, do you see the difference? And what James is saying is when we engage after our salvation in the works of our life obediently, those works bring rescue and mending and further healing and are part of the overarching picture of our salvation. If you think salvation is I became a Christian at this date and I'm going to do whatever I want in this period of time, and then at that date, I'm going to go to heaven because I have the right theology. I think we're at risk. This entire letter is saying, no, no, no. You've been grafted into a storyline. You've been implanted with the word, Jesus. And you are now on a rescue mission. And just like Abraham, you facing the trials that come your way in faith strengthens you to love God more and more. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly in the very famous love chapter. The idea is, but the more faith, the more that love moves us in faith obediently, we see him more clearly, even this side of heaven. And we fall more and more in love with God through these actions, through these works. So you get to that verse again, in verse 24. So you see that a person is justified by works. In other words, the reason that all went the way it did was because of actual tangible action and works of rescue, but not just Abraham's, by the way. We'll get to that. And then he tells another story. And he says, and in the same way, verse 25, was, also, was not also Rahab the prostitute, bless her heart, she can't get past that, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? I love the story of Rahab. If you were here for the mothers of Jesus, we did an entire sermon on Rahab. Um, just to recap, Abraham is in Genesis. He's the father of our faith. Isaac, Jacob, and they have the 12 tribes, and we end with the death of Joseph. And then in Exodus, the second book, Moses comes on this scene like 400 years later, rescues now a gigantic number of people that are more enslaved, rescues them. And the next four books of the Bible are sort of that process, and they come right up to the Jordan. And then Joshua, the sixth book of the Old Testament, is our going into our, it's our story, 
going into the promised land, the conquest. And remember one of the, the first places they come to is Jericho. So Joshua sends these spies in. Jericho's a fortified city. These spies are going to go try to figure out what, what they're going to do. And, and they get caught, and they're going to probably be killed. But Rahab, a prostitute, maybe a madam, I don't know, does that make it any better? I don't know. She hides them at great risk, sends them up on a roof. She rescues them. And so once it's safe, she lowers them out by a different way, and, 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 and they go out, and then they promise that when this happens, when this takes place, because she's going to have a cord hanging out of her window because the, the housing was in the wall, so you had windows on the outer, outer walls, they would rescue her. And all in that room, including her whole family, if you read it, she's a prostitute going to her mom and dad and who knows how many siblings and saying, I've got a method to save your lives. And they trusted her. It's this glorious picture of rescue that is overwhelming. By faith, What? You know, a lot of people talk about the conquest. It's so evil how many people were wiped out. Listen, if you heard God was coming and you said, hey, I want to be a believer in Yahweh and do whatever you need me to do, you were saved. And Rahab is a perfect example of that. So, fast forward to the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1. David, who's his dad? Anyone know? Jesse. Jesse's granddad, Boaz. Boaz. Boaz, remember, he marries Ruth. He is a kinsman redeemer. You remember the story of Ruth? Uh, and you wonder, what sort of upbringing does that man have where he would have that kind of righteousness and that kind of care for a widow, a foreign widow? And then you read a little bit further and you find, actually, it's before I'm going backwards. His mother is Rahab. After the rescue, she marries a man named Salomon, and they have Boaz. Wow. And it leads to Jesus. Do you hear the rescue going on in these stories? These are the works by which you and I are saved. And you come to a third story of rescue, and it's our Savior, Jesus. And in Philippians, Paul, like James, is longing to get his congregation, this Philippian church, to stop grumbling. Right after he tells his story, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. May I encourage you guys to stop grumbling and disputing, and myself included. We are in a pandemic, and I feel like the easiest thing we can do is grumble and dispute at every turn. The school system, the mask ordinances, the way our church is doing this, and that, the way the, my spouse is doing that, and the way you're, the gospel is so big. It, said, it doesn't say, unless it's a really bad year and there's a pandemic. It's like, no matter how bad it gets, we have a Savior who has rescued us from that hellish lifestyle that it creates. But to get to that place, Paul tells a story. He wants them to have joy. He wants them to have humility. So how does he do it? He says, let me tell you a story about Jesus. Because I want you to have the same mindset he had, which is yours. You, do you hear what he's doing? He doesn't just say, stop it. He says, let me tell you a story of a person named Jesus. And the way Paul says it is this, in, in the ESV it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I've actually done a series on Philippians and and studying that passage, one of the commentators did a really good job of arguing with you, certain words. You can have a few choices, right? And the word though, it's not, it's, is that how significant is that? He said, I think a better word, and he makes a great argument, is because. So let's try it and see what you think. Not that that's how you choose, by the way. But if it works and it's the way it's supposed to be done, listen to what, how that sounds. Have the mindset of Christ Jesus who, because he was God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. In other words, his godness made him not want to usurp his economic role in the Trinity. You have a Trinity, a Father, a Son, and a Spirit. Only one person in that Trinity can come and rescue. And Jesus didn't play the God card and say, hey, I don't have to do that, I'm God. It's because he's God, he rescued That's what God does. That's what the mind of God, the DNA you and I have, does when there's a problem, when there's brokenness, when there's fracture in our midst. We go and we seek to mend. Now, in heaven, when there's no fracture, or in Eden, when there was no fracture, that might not have been what it looked like. But when it comes, in the dispersion we're in, our response is not to grumble, to complain, to dispute. It's to heal and rescue because of what's been done to us. The rescue we've received in Christ. That's exactly what Paul goes on to say. He made it, he took the form of a servant. He became born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him. In our passage or in our letter, James says, you who are lowly, poor in spirit, are exalted because of Christ. That is who you are. That's your grafting in. Is that your mindset? This week, I, uh, Emily and my daughter were down and out with a stomach illness. I was caring for them and watching a YouTube video that changed my life. Um, <clears throat> the author of this video, it's a, a new book called Art Plus Faith. <clears throat> His name is Makoto Fujimura. He's an artist, a Christian, a Japanese man. And uh, he shares an art form that I'm, we lived in Japan, I'm sure I heard of it, but was so busy learning other things I ignored, I don't know. It's called kintsugi. Have you heard of this? Kintsugi is a Japanese art form. It came out of the 16th century in Japan. The Japanese are very um, ritualistic, and they have a a, a ceremony called the high tea ceremony. But inadvertently, of course, these, these beautiful ornaments that have been passed on from generation might crack or break. Unlike Americans who just scrap it and buy the new one, the Japanese, of course, there was no modernity. They had to kind of hold on to this stuff. They would want it to be fixed. But rather than fixing it to where you couldn't tell it was broken, kind of a Western concept, they would give it to a master in this art of kintsugi who would then mend it with, like, gold. Can you put the video? How long has that been there? Okay. That's what it looks like. And the idea is now the fractures are filled with a more glorious substance. And what ends up happening is these priceless heirlooms that are, in some cases, are, they wait generations to, before they can even have them fixed, become more valuable and more glorious and more beautiful when they're mended. I think that we often are so scared of naming our brokenness because we think we'll be lower than. 
less than. So we go around pretending we don't have fractures and brokenness. And the gospel invites you, and James is inviting you with joy to go find those fractures and let Jesus mend them, not with gold, but with his own blood in those crevices. One of the things that uh, Makoto Fujimura said is he said he started practicing this art form. He's not necessarily that great at it, though he's an incredible painter. But he says now he picks up like a coffee cup and he just, he's, he says, I'm far more aware of the fractures, almost looking forward to the mending of them. Like he can't wait. And I thought, that is James, the joy of finding the places that need mending. Because the alternative is to ignore it, like look, not looking at the, you know, forgetting the mirror, and creating this wasteland of broken vessels in your path and crushing everything before you. And it's not an option. That's what James is saying. James is saying, listen, the two things that aren't an option, the idea of salvation by works, it's ridiculous. In fact, in our very, pa- in chapter two, did God not choose the poor? What is that? That's, an, that's predestination right there in chapter two. God chose you before the foundation of the world as someone who has nothing. You're dead in your trespasses. James hearkening with the same language as Paul. But now that you've been recipient of the spirit, the implanted word, you have a new path and we're not free to go around turning a blind eye on the brokenness in our own lives and in the world. Our number one mission from now on is this art form, Kintsugi, going to Jesus, the master artist, and saying, I have a broken place. Will you mend it? And having faith that he will. And that's like the cancer treatment. Guess what's going to happen as I do this? I'm going to go tell you about it. Hey, I see you have a broken little fracture. Let me show you Jesus. He wants to heal you. Can I heal you? Can I lend you something? Last week, and I'm ending with this, he just said, true religion is, is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. We have affliction. We have a, a healer. And we now love and, and seek out affliction. Let that be where we go. Next week, we're going to look at the tongue. I want to encourage you by saying this. This is a large ask. James is heavy on one hand. On the other hand, remember, the work you're saved by is Jesus. And in both the case of Abraham and Rahab, they didn't do the saving. The angel came because of Jesus, and the rescue came because of God and Jesus, right? They simply were at the right place obediently. So we're not fixing ourselves. We're simply going to the source. That's faith. We're taking our brokenness and we're going to the source and trusting that he will do the mending. Let it be so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to fall in love with redemptive kintsugi, that you are the artist. And Lord, you fix broken things. We often talk about how you're the potter and we're the clay. We don't finish that out by saying, and we crack and crumble, and you come in and fill with gold and blood and redeem and rescue. And Lord, that we end up becoming not sadder and worse and more broken, but more beautiful and more valuable and almost needing to begin to not go try to get fractured, but to be thankful that you will fix every fracture and now we begin to notice even the minutest things because we long for healing. Lord, let this be true in our marriages, in our parenting, in the way we interact in social media, the thought processes we have, our conversations. 
or how we view people, whether it's uh, lifting certain people up on the basis of outward things or reducing other people or even hating people. Lord, the enemy is at work, and we need rescue. Teach us to run to you. Amen.